Hey guys, thanks for listening to Kind of Dating, the comedy dating podcast where influential guests and I break down the dating world and try to figure out why the fuck do we all have commitment issues? Today's topic is reprogramming your love life. Uh, say what? Yeah, let's do it. Hello, Kind of Daters. I'm Natasha Chandel. You're listening to Kind of Dating. Yo, I just got back from a trip to India. We are recording this mid-January. It'll probably air end of January, but I feel like I just got over my jet lag. What was supposed to be just a regular fun little trip where I was taking my partner, Luis, to India for the first time turned into a wedding trip, which you motherfuckers know happened the thing that happened. Um, Recently, we got engaged. um, And as much as I love India, I love it. It is my home. I adore it. I dream every year of going home. Man, it is a rough place for wedding shopping. Firstly, obviously, we had to do a lot in two weeks. But Geez, I had like PTSD from all my negotiations with vendors at the stores. And if you know, you know, this is really one of those hashtags, if you know, you know. I had two nightmares when I came back about those negotiations. So now I'm just trying to shake it off. And here we are in new fucking 2024. You know how I feel about New Year's and New Year's resolutions. I don't plan on making them, but I do have some fun news to announce to you. So this episode is airing at the end of January 2024, and this is a reminder that we have changed, actually, our uh, release schedule. So instead of being a weekly podcast uh, or having a weekly podcast drop, we are going to go to every other week. Because yes, your girl finally just got hitched or is getting hitched. So I need some time to plan shit. It's not happening in this country. It's a lot of work please give me a break. But we are not leaving you hanging. Um, We have launched a YouTube channel at the uh, start of this month, and we have episodes dropping there weekly, sometimes even twice a week. Yeah, you never know what little treat you might get. So please subscribe to our channel there and support us. Um, I know, I know, I should have done it a long time ago, but listen, we're a small indie operation over here, and we work other jobs to support doing this. Uh, So please support us wherever you can. We love you. We love this podcast. We want to keep going. So subscribe to that channel. It's youtube.com slash kind of dating, or I don't know, just search kind of dating podcast on YouTube. You'll find it. You know where to find us, but please support us and tell your friends. We have a great guest. Uh, I'm excited to have uh, her on. She uh, is a licensed counselor and relationship and intimacy expert. I want to welcome Dr. Elizabeth Fedrick. Hello. Hello, Natasha. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. I love your background because you have your own podcast uh, and it's so like set up so perfectly. I love it. Thank you. Yes, it is uh, very relatable what we do on my podcast and uh, also what you do on yours. So I love that. Thank you. Um, well, we have to. We ask everybody the first question on this podcast, which is single or in a relationship. Single as fuck. That's yes, that's what I, uh, not just single. Single as fuck. I love it. I love yes. it. I love it. Um, are you getting out there, chilling? What do you have a New Year's resolution about this shit? Oh, I don't do that. Good. Either. So no, that's not a thing. But I was thinking. I was just telling my friend the other day. I'm like, okay. It's not a resolution, but I'm like, let's reprioritize. I work a fuck ton. So I'm like, let's just kind of shift this so I can, you know, make time for that. And I'm like, what are we two weeks in? And I have made zero time for it. So I'm like, this is why we don't do resolutions because I suck at them. Um, So no, I'm not out there, but that's the plan maybe. I don't blame you at all because uh, I actually say I'm like, I feel like New Year's resolutions are like the first time you have sex. You know, there's like (laughs) all this like anticipation and hope and it lasts all of one minute. Right. 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 So disappointing. Every single time. Every time. Every time. But it's okay. The one thing I tell people is like, and I don't know how you feel. I'm sure you feel the same way. I know that we like to have like a marker. So it's nice to have like New Year's as a marker, but every day is a new opportunity. For sure. To try something new. So it doesn't have to be like, okay, fuck, I missed this New Year's resolution timeline. So now I have to wait till the next year. It's like, just try again tomorrow. (laughs) Totally. And that is, yeah, that is totally my thought. And throughout the year, I'm 
always, you know, trying to do new things, trying to evolve, trying to pivot. So I, I absolutely agree, but uh, clearly not with my dating life. So I will get my ass in check with that. It's okay, man. We all have, we all have a thing, right? Like, yeah. trust me. It's I have all, a few, but yeah, sure. Yeah, all of us, all of us, for sure. Um, and also like, we have to prioritize our careers too, you know, especially as women, it, it gets hard. Like I struggle yeah. all the time because now that I'm in a relationship, I feel like, you know, I put that uh, career stuff sometimes on the back, you know, right. because I want to make time for the relationship. And then I have to like stop myself and go, wait, wait, wait. Like, what would I normally do in this situation? Um, so, so it's a balance all the time. Sure. Um, so, you know, you talk about reprogramming uh, relationships and many of us, I feel like, uh, struggle and have struggled. I know I have a lot in the past um, to not just find, but like maintain good relationships. Mm -hmm. So I want to ask you, what the fuck is wrong with us? Yeah, valid question. And it ties into our programming and that's, that is the very thing. So so many of us struggle with relationships, as you're saying, either obtaining or maintaining these um, healthy, also whatever the fuck that means, right? But fulfilling, content, safe would kind of be what I tie into healthy is that we feel mostly fulfilled. Nothing is ever going to be perfect, but there's some contentment there. We feel safe for the most part. But a lot of us struggle to find that. It's We either feel like we have to pick one or the other. We're either safe and bored or we're excited, but then we're in the toxic cycle every day, which is, you know, definitely takes a toll. And so working with clients, couple, whether individuals or couples for years and years, and knowing that traditional couple counseling is really rooted in communication skills. The first time, you, you know, a couple sits down, okay, what are you guys here for to improve our communication? That is one of the biggest societal misconceptions about why relationships don't work. It does not have anything... Okay, that's not fair. It is not all about communication. Of course, that ties into it, but that is so naive, so ignorant, and doing us all a disservice. And so what really is going on is the way we are programmed from the day, you know, our first day on this earth, um, and then the way that it was programmed in childhood, but then the way it's been perpetuated throughout our romantic relationships as a result of that. Yeah, uh, I think everybody thinks that, you know, it's a one solution uh, or one problem that that is the root of everything. And it never is. It's a very complex right. issue of why uh, any relationship uh, struggles um, or what the formula is. That's one of the reasons I hate that, you know, um, because it is like you kind of have to have a multi-pronged approach to uh, improving relationships and, and keeping them because we're just complex beings that way. Um, yeah. So what do you mean by like, how how is our life and our love life programmed? Like, are we computers? What are you talking about? Well, that's the analogy I use, but I've been asked to stop using it because I <laughs> don't know anything about computers. And so I've had some friends be like, yo, you're not really spitting that out in the way you're intending. You might want to pick a new analogy. But yes, that is the way that I describe it, is the way that a computer is programmed, whether it's putting wires in the back or coding in whatever. When you put a certain input in, that is going to result in a certain output. So when we think about our programming, what I mean by this is that all of our early experiences with our primary caregivers really set the stage for what we come to believe about relationships, what we believe about ourselves, what we believe about others, and relationships as a whole. And research supports that within about the first two to three weeks of infancy, infants are already imitating what they're learning and seeing in their environment. So really think about that. If within a couple of weeks, we're already showing up in the way that our environments have shaped us, imagine what 16, 17, 18 years is going to do that has been so deeply ingrained in us. And what I mean by that is the way that our caregivers show up. So whether they show up consistently as warm, nurturing, attentive, or they show up consistently as chaotic or abusive, neglectful, and then everything along the spectrum of that. But the way that they are repeatedly showing up is the way that we, that forms our worldview about relationships. 
And so we then carry this with us. So this is all we know. This is the only template we have. We are not then in adult relationships intentionally trying to be assholes or trying to do fucked up things. This is really all we know. And a big part of that is because humans are designed for safety and connection and belonging. And that is inherent. And so we are then trying to navigate our worlds to figure out how can I obtain that while also managing the distress of whatever my caregiver is bringing into the picture. And that's where we then develop a lot of those dysfunctional behaviors that we carry with us. And so, yes, in a lot of ways, that is exactly what I mean. It is whatever is you know typed, coded into us is the way we're operating present day. And it happens without our awareness or our consent, which is one of the most difficult aspects of programming. So it's our parents' fault. <laughs> yeah. So your parents <laughs> fucked you up is what I'm trying to say. They I don't. I don't actually believe that. To be clear, intergenerational trauma is a real bitch, right? So that is it is passed down their programming, their their parents, their grandparents. Like it had has all been passed down, and if it hasn't been brought to your attention, which a lot of people aren't directly aware of it, then what are we going to do? We don't we don't know any better, so we can't do better. And so, well, yes, in a lot of ways, um, parents do influence it. I like to hold space for the and there. Some parents really are fucked up and okay, fine. Um, but I would say a lot of parents did the best they could and they might have really done some damage. Yeah, it's. Uh, I actually did this course uh, in university, I remember, called Developmental Psychobiology. It always really, really stuck in my head. It was just this one semester course I did, but it was on uh, the development of just stress and anxiety in the first three years of uh, yeah. a person's life. And I was so mind blown at the information I learned that basically, you know, because I've always thought in general that a lot of people should not be parents. Um, I really feel like I, I, you know, I used to live in New York City. I used to walk, you know, get on trains. I used to see people just screaming at their kids, just doing normal kid things. And I was like, why are you like, why do you have a kid if you have no time? You're so irritated. Like, and I get it. Kids also make that (laughs) make that worse. But um, it's just this idea that like maybe you weren't equipped in the first place. And that that course I remember really stuck with me because it was as simple as you know, you hear a kid cry and some people have the thought that, well, let, let them let him keep crying because uh, that's how they will, they will learn to self-soothe. Right. But there's a balance to that, right? Coming back to the beginning of this where we kept, keep saying there's some balance to everything mm-hmm. that if you let them keep crying too long, they develop a type of stress like reaction and it changes their actual homeostasis yep. that like affects them through their whole life because they believe nobody will come for them. At the same time, coddling them too much also can yeah. fuck you up. So it's like, I know it's like an impossible thing in a sense to be a parent. Um, right. But I, I remember that that course really kind of woke me up and I've always, often told my friends about it where I was just like, hey, maybe now meet your kid's need because uh, otherwise they're going to get like, you know, grow up with a lot of anxiety and abandonment issues that, like you said, is not something that they consented to. It wasn't something, you know, they made happen. Yeah, they were completely powerless to it. And that is one of the hardest things is when our core beliefs develop, it is rooted in that, that we were were subjected to these environments and to these people who often had a lot of their own process trauma. And as you're saying, maybe had no business being parents to begin with or just weren't equipped. They didn't know any better. And so you're absolutely right that when we then... So that's a good example of allowing a child to cry it out, as they say, to teach self-soothing. And the research is so against that and actually talks about in order to, to build resiliency in a child they have to know that somebody is going to show up when they need them. So if they're in distress and they have a caregiver who is able to show up and provide support, that is how we become resilient because then the belief we form is that people are safe and they're going to show up when we need them. Um, But otherwise, we develop what I call survival behaviors. And these are, this ties in a lot to like attachment styles. So this is, 
either the people-pleasing, perfectionism, fawning, performative behaviors, um, withdrawing, avoidance, isolating, you know, all of those behaviors that we talk about so often, that is what we start to develop. Because when you think about the baby that's crying it out, okay, so the nervous system is like, you got to figure something out because you can't be in this state forever. And so often that means going into like a state of dissociation, just shutting down, just paralysis, where then the parent's like, oh, thank God. See, they they self-soothed. No, they completely just shut down. They shut off. And that is then what we carry with us into adulthood. And I talk about how I was about seven years old when I remember my dad used to brag, like, she never cries. She never cries. And he said it's such a badge of honor. And looking back and, and you know, the work I do now, I'm like, that is just so fucked up on so many levels. Like that little girl didn't cry because there was no point in crying or it was more dangerous to cry, right? And so that is where those behaviors develop that impact our romantic relationships. Yeah, it's so true. As you were saying that, I was remembering, I don't think I've ever said this story on the podcast, um, probably no fucking need to, but uh, when I was one years old, um, my parents always tell me the story that uh, we were, well, I was born in Dubai. And so they, I guess, took me to India to, you know, just as like a trip. And uh, on the way back, they realized, my dad realized he forgot my passport. And so uh, they had to leave me with my grandma for a month in India. Wow. And I was like, super, and I loved my grandma. I was super, sure. super, super close to her. Um, but for some reason, I at one years old, knew what was happening. And so when I finally got back with my parents, my mom was like, for some reason, Tash, you came to me, you would not go to your dad. Like you were just so mad at him for like letting you down, I think. And it's so crazy because you think, well, well, what would a one-year-old know? But we don't know exactly what happened, but we just absorbed certain energies, I'm sure. Um, sure. And that was really like a very much of a marker for our relationship. You know, I have a great relationship with my mom and I would always get like immensely angry with my dad. Um, And I always felt let down by him in many ways. And so, you know, it's weird. Like, can you trace it back to that or those kinds of moments? I don't know, but it is, there's something that gets um, etched in sort of your being. Yeah. Yeah, that's it, it's the body keeps the score is the uh, yes. term that is used for that. And um, what you're describing is what we call pre-verbal trauma. So you don't have to be able to recall or verbalize what happened. Your body knows damn well what happened. And when we think about attachment styles and we think about for a child, it's about at nine months that the attachment is solidified with their primary caregivers. So that was really traumatic for one-year-old you. For sure. That is a lot of abandonment that was, uh, you know, the base of your narrative now. But when, you know, when we talk about it and we talk about the fact that this is so rooted in childhood and, and times of our life that we didn't control, how, how could we even start to reprogram yeah. something yeah, which like is- that? Which is valid. And that's also the part that's so important to me is to provide hope because the aspect with attachment styles that I think sometimes um, becomes a little disheartening or a little defeating is that it's like, okay, cool. You're telling me how I show up, but now what? And with the reprogramming aspect of it, there is a now what? It is identifying the activity that I take my clients through is doing a timeline from birth to present day. And so events that like you just described, we would be identifying And we are talking about the themes that take place throughout the lifespan and how they continue to show up. But then also how we sometimes end up in relationships or a lot of times end up in relationships with people who perpetuate those traumas because again, it's all we know. So we are drawn to that. The brain is wired for what's familiar. So so we're drawn to it and it continues to perpetuate. When we bring awareness to our programming that, okay, these are our themes. This is what continued to happen. And now let me look at my romantic relationships. Oh, yeah, that makes sense why I was drawn to this person and that person because, you you know, their tendencies uh, mirrored a lot of this. Okay, so first of all, we have to have awareness of the people that we're getting in relationship with that are mirroring our programming. And then also our survival behaviors. So we keep acting in certain ways because it's what kept us safe at one point and is now causing harm. And when we 
increase our awareness around those things. And then we identify the, the specifics that need to change and then allow time for adaptation because we did not get programmed overnight. We're not going to reprogram overnight, which is commonly what happens. People will just give up and go back to what's familiar. So that's where the reprogramming can be difficult. But awareness, identification of change, and then adaptation, that is really the recipe for starting your reprogramming. Hey, friends, it's your girl, Natasha Chandale, and I've got some really cool news to share. I'm finally offering one-on-one virtual dating coaching. That's right. You've been sliding in my DMs for years, but let's finally chat face-to-face or Zoom-to-Zoom. If you're in a dating rut, let's get you out. I'm the friend you never had and the honest dating coach you need. Whether you're in a relationship or looking for one, I'm here to talk through your problem, provide personalized guidance, and find a solution. For all you loyal listeners, you know that I had a string of unhealthy relationships. After escaping an abusive one, I decided to take accountability for my love life, healed myself, and put myself on a path to dating success. I am now in a happy, healthy relationship and want to help empower you in your dating journey too. I want to get you to an empowered state where you're making dating decisions from a positive, secure place. So when the stars align and you meet that right person, you're ready to welcome them. My approach is honest, practical, because I've actually dated in the modern landscape, optimistic, and I tend to go deep. And as a woman of color and an immigrant, I understand the nuances of many cultures. And with my background as a comedian, we'll probably have some laughs along the way. If you're ready to take control of your dating life, let's chat. Go to our new website, www.kindadating.com services for 50% off your first introductory session. That's right. 50% off your first introductory dating coaching session. Go to www.kindadating.com services and book your dating coaching session with me today. Talk soon. Yeah. And, and like you said, it is very important to know that, that it takes time. You know, um, uh, I really do feel like I have reprogrammed a good chunk of my brain when it comes to relationships as somebody who, you know, um, had a lot of trauma around it. And um, uh, it took a good chunk of time. <laughs> and even then you're constantly working at it because yes. you, you, your mind wants to deflect back to its old self. But mm-hmm. I do think that that's a very relatable thing for people, name of your podcast, um, <laughs> that, you know, we find ourselves in the same pattern over and over and over and over again. Um, I just do think it's, it's hard for people to believe that they can actually reprogram. Yeah. Because it's hard because it requires action. So it's, it doesn't matter how many podcasts you listen to. It doesn't matter how many books you read. It doesn't matter how many therapists you see. If they're, if you're not applying that knowledge that you're gaining, the reprogramming can't take place. And the hardest part of that is that forcing ourselves out of our comfort zone to do something that feels so uncomfortable and so um, even distressing sometimes. That's really hard. And we can compare it to losing weight or breaking a habit or, you know, anything like that, that we know we exactly what you just said. We, we are drawn back to what's familiar. We're drawn back to what we're used to. But when we start to make it a habit and just pick something small to implement, just pick something that is just like a day-to-day thing we're going to just slowly start to add in, it does, you know, snowball over time. But that that is my biggest takeaway. Like I can give all the knowledge in the world on attachment styles and programming and all of that. But my biggest takeaway is like, just pick something and do it. And that's what, where you'll get the change. Yeah, I remember when I started this process, um, I had come out of a, uh, an abusive relationship. This is back in the day. Um, listeners know about it, so I won't get into it. But uh, it, it was v- very abusive. And, and when I came out, I totally identified, oh my gosh, how could I get in this? Oh, wow, this feels familiar with sort of the chaos I was going through at home. And then I realized like, okay, well, what's happening? And the first thing I noticed was, well, some part of me was scared of being alone. So I decided I'm going to train myself to learn to be alone. 
And so I started, my simplest step was I forced myself to go to movies by myself. Mm. And it felt so uncomfortable. And like I had never eaten by myself. You know, it was just things that we're not trained to do. And, um, And I would force myself to go do it, you know, like sit at a, uh, a restaurant by myself and eat and not worry what people were thinking about me and learn to enjoy the meal. And same thing with the movie, the movie I very much remember because I, it was the, I don't know, it was the worst feeling in the world, getting yourself Mm -hmm. up to go watch a movie by yourself in a movie theater. Um, because it feels like such a date activity or a friend activity. Um, but when I did it, it felt amazing. Once I became free of that, you know, Um, and then fast forward in time, I like loved my time alone. And then I, you know, I really, somebody needed to be of great value really to, for me to want to spend my alone time with them. And I love that example because that really demonstrates the difference with programming versus traditional couples counseling or traditional therapy in general, because What you're describing, definitely we could tie into attachment styles, the difference between like anxious and avoidant, but we can also tie that in culturally. So you being raised in a collectivist society and me being raised in an individualistic society, for me, it's the opposite. I'm like... I I have to force myself to be like, okay, fine, you can come over. Okay, fine, I'll go on a date. Like It is so the opposite because I feel so much safer being by myself and being alone. Um, But that is what the reprogramming is because in traditional therapy, they're going to give you and I the same, okay, here you go. Here's your recipe. But with this relationship programming, no, we're going to understand what's specific to you, what's specific to me and what changes those need to be made. And your example of the change is perfect. I mean, that's exactly it. Pick something when you, when you know you're making choices about your relationships based in um, whether it is overly pursuing people or people pleasing or, okay, well then choose not to do that, whatever it looks like. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's a great example. Yeah. And it's definitely, it's all baby steps. So listeners uh, just keep like, I I appreciate you just saying that it takes some time and it takes, you know, uh, meant a series of steps basically. Yes. Yeah. Um, you also talk about, uh, sort of toxic cycles. Um, What do you mean by that? So the toxic cycle can best be defined by what often happens is two people are in this like infatuation stage with each other, right? So it's like butterflies, head over heels. And then something happens, usually something minor, and it completely derails. So somebody will say something, the other person takes offense to it, it blows up into this big fight which often results in separation. So if people are in a relationship, maybe that means somebody's sleeping on the couch, but if they don't live together, maybe they're not talking for days. Um, so we're like tracking a cycle. So then, so they're not talking, that separation happens. And then somebody will slowly put out feelers and they'll kind of, you know, maybe they're going to text something that's not too risky, but just kind of see what the response is. The other person will probably warm up, start that engagement, Nothing is discussed about the fight. Nothing is discussed about the dysfunction. But now we're like texting every day. And now we're back and sleeping in the same bed. We're back to infatuation. And then we, know, we, get, we get how the cycle goes. It's just going to happen again. This cycle is so common for so many people to really vacillate between that obsession and almost like that hatred. Um, and it stays on loop. Yeah, it really does. I was talking to a friend about this the other day um, who was saying, uh, you know, because we were talking about forgiveness and forgetting. And mm-hmm. and I said, I forgive, but I don't usually forget. And um, uh, And then she was like, yeah, I had to learn for her because she kept getting back in these toxic cycles over and over again. She's like, I forget too much. So I started to write it down. And I said, yes, good, because... That was also something I did, especially after sort of, you know, getting into an abusive thing. I, even with him, would sometimes forget in a couple months, you know, and and that kind of, that person was somebody who, who kept trying to come back in. And I realized like, oh, wait, it's okay sometimes to hold on to 
the anger because it's trying to protect you. Um, And so I had to, you know, write things down to kind of end that toxic cycle. And again, just to to have listeners understand that this this can be broken. You know, when I got uh, engaged that week or in the the two weeks after we got engaged, I had five exes reach out to me in all different ways. Like people I hadn't spoken to. I was like, huh? And people I saw outside randomly at like a restaurant. I was like, I didn't even know you were in the state anymore. And I just didn't engage, which, you know, old you might've just like, even just to be polite or whatever would have re-engaged. I was like, I'm good. Yeah. Moving yeah. On. Um, so so I do think that those things can be broken. For sure. And that it ties into the programming as well. And for a lot of us, when we end up in those toxic cycles, it's because it's what we witnessed. So, I mean, my parents, they just got divorced maybe about three years ago. So for over 30 years, they literally did this toxic cycle over and over and over that it's my earliest memories. And so when I think about that and how I got into this work was was not, I didn't even realize that. It was because I ended up in this toxic, a toxic relationship that I kept getting in these cycles. And, you know, I usually identify as like a strong, independent woman. So I'm like, why the fuck does this man keep sucking? Like, who are you? Like, you're nobody in that way. Like, why do you keep sucking me back in? And so I had to do research around it. And that is when I discovered the addiction that takes place and the um, the pathways that are changed in these type of dynamics. And then that's also when I realized and started to form the model around programming was that the toxic cycle was my relationship programming. That is what I knew of how relationships operated um, in a state of chaos and then a state of infatuation and just vacillating between the two. Um, But you're absolutely right. It can be broken and we have to have the awareness first of, of where it's coming from. And then breaking the toxic cycle really is like breaking an addiction. Like there's withdrawal symptoms, all of that. Kind of daters. Are you a catch but not getting any matches on your dating app profile? Then Profile Booster is perfect for you. It's a brand new service offered by Kinda Dating to optimize your dating app profile so you can reflect the best version of yourself online and get the matches you deserve. With sometimes five pictures and three prompts, it's hard to showcase your full self. You'll be working with me, Natasha Chandale, a dating expert and professional screenwriter, and Luis Miranda, a veteran brand strategist with a track record of success. Oh, and we're a real-life couple. After a string of our own failed relationships and shitty dates, Luis and I individually decided to get more intentional about our love lives. We crafted dating app profiles that stood out, were memorable, and were authentically us. We matched on a dating app just three weeks before the pandemic lockdown and recently celebrated our three-year anniversary this year. Since then, we've successfully helped friends do the same and now want to help you. We'll customize a plan just for you so you can showcase your authentic voice and image to attract the right match for you. Ready to boost your love life? Profile Booster is available now at an incredibly affordable price. Visit www.kindadating.com services And let's transform your dating profile and get you more matches today. Yeah, I was going to ask you what you would suggest in sort of today's time, because like now we have social media, everybody, you know, uh, it's just, what do they call it? Haunting, you know, where that ex is always just liking your posts. Mm -hmm. Um, Suddenly you, I remember back in the day with when Instagram first started, you could see who was, um, what they liked. Um, Yeah. And it did become very addictive to want to know what they're doing all the time, them knowing what you're doing, and then trying to reach out. So like, how do you, what do you suggest for people in that sort of loop right now? Sure. So when you think of an alcoholic trying to stay sober, you can't hang out in a bar. You can't just take one shot. You can't, you're, even the circle of people around you, you have to be aware of. And, and that is the analogy that I use because people can usually grasp that and they don't think of relationships in that way. But it's the exact same thing when you identify that this is toxic, this is not good for me, it's taking a toll on my mental health, then we need to remove it from your life. And so no contact, as harsh as that is and as hard as that is, can actually be one of the most effective 
tools, um, but also unfollowing on socials. And sometimes it's blocking numbers, it's blocking on socials. And not, I know a lot of people, especially when they struggle with maybe codependency or people pleasing, they're like, but that's so mean. Like, I don't, I don't want to be mean. I don't want to hurt their feelings. If we can just look at it for a second, that it's not about being mean, it's about protecting yourself. And I know for me, like those are the things I have to do. I have to not be able to see what, what that person is doing because then I create these narratives and these stories and I end up hurting my own feelings. And I'm like, I just don't need to look at it. I don't need to know. And also sometimes when we block a number, the helpful part of that is yes, if they have been reaching out, it protects us from that. But also if they haven't been reaching out, or if they reach out very sporadically, it can help because you're not sitting there staring at your phone wondering if it's going to light up. You j- it takes all of that out of it and it frees up so much emotional space. So when I'm talking to people about breaking that, no contact if possible, like just no access to socials, no access to talking, all of that for a while. Yeah, and uh, I I really do believe that that uh, I don't want to be mean thing, which I also used to subscribe to, is bullshit, and it's just an excuse. Because uh, are you also taking into consideration like are is that X or is that person uh, valuing your feelings? Are they thinking about you when they're harassing you on uh, social media, just trying to get back into your life? Like, no, they're not. And sometimes, and also like. When we're in relationships, when we go back into these toxic cycles, we say a bunch of shit to these people. We're not worried about being mean then. So let's totally. stop acting like we're being fucking martyrs now. And like, I just want to be a good person and take the high road, which means I should talk to them. No, fuck that shit. You know, yeah. that just means you want to talk to them. That's so admit exactly that it. You want to talk to them and that's fine. But right. uh, don't make it an excuse that you're you're worried about being mean suddenly. Right. And that's exactly it. Yeah. And that is generally what it boils down to. I've been there. I have a lot of clients who've been there. I'm like, I want the attention. So I'm not, but the problem is the attention is most often breadcrumbing. And so it's enough attention to keep us hooked on them. It is not enough attention to meet our emotional needs. And um, if you want to reprogram, if you want to get out of these cycles, you are going to have to do the hard thing. And the hard thing is to stop communicating with a person that's making your life a living hell. Amen, sister. Mic drop. That's it. We're done. <laughs> um, what are uh, some of the five types of intimacy that you also talk about? Yeah. So um, the five types that I talk about, physical, emotional, spiritual, experiential, and intellectual. And I talk a lot about this when I do intimacy coaching um, because often we get obsessed. We think intimacy means sex. Like that is, we think it's a synonymous thing. And so when we're trying to improve intimacy, we're not focusing on the right things. We're not really getting deep into what's going on. And so the types of intimacy are so important because people are aroused in different ways that desire is formed in different ways. Um, I talk about intellectual foreplay is my absolute favorite. That is going to, you're going to turn me on with that way more than anything else. And so I help couples to gain awareness around, like, as you said at the very beginning, humans are complex. And that also means what turns us on. Um, And so this awareness of these different types can be helpful for really strengthening a relationship, but also ultimately improving sexual intimacy. Because when you're aroused from these other things, that's going to make sex a whole lot better. It really does. Uh, as somebody who used to have a lot of uh, frivolous sex um, and I loved it, at some point I stopped loving it, not for nothing, but I just like felt nothing for the other person. And I never mm-hmm. thought I wanted to, but at some point just sex is the same old shit over and over. And the only thing that kind of started making it stand out is if I liked them. And uh, and part of that was like building that intimacy with those people and going like, do I care about you? What do I care about you? And it made me want to um, try harder (laughs) in Mm -hmm. sex, like as in, you know, to like enjoy it more, be more present, all that stuff. Um, So I do think that that um, makes a big difference. And I appreciate you talking about that. Um, You talk about uh, something else that I really want to discuss, which is um, you say that there are five overlooked and under-discussed things in relationships. Um, 
you know, obviously we're trying to reprogram ourselves. We want to start having healthier relationships. Tell us these secrets. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, it all ties into the programming. It ties into what we've been talking about, a portion of it, I guess. The first one is that um, not addressing our trauma and being aware of our triggers and what activates us, what puts us into our dysfunctional survival behaviors, that is first and foremost overlooked in not just society, not just social media, but actually with therapists, within in the mental health field. That is often not given the attention that it needs, that the way that we show up in relationships has to do with our programming, but then also with our triggers. Um, so that's the first and foremost, which I'm sure when you were going through a lot of your reprogramming, becoming aware of those triggers were so important. Oh, definitely. You have to, uh, but but also uh, it happened in steps, right? Yeah. It's not like um, all I was aware of every single issue in the beginning. It was sort of like, you know, when you have a, okay, um, this is a weird analogy, but I had a car accident where I had a, a head injury, a neck injury, and like whole thing down my left side, right? Please. But in the beginning, the only focus was my head because that's all like, um, that was the most painful thing. And right. then once I started working on that, then I was like, oh, wow, my neck hurts. How come I didn't know my neck hurt this whole time? And they were like, oh, it's because we started taking care of the first problem that you started realizing what the next problem was. So it's yeah. kind of, it felt like that, like an onion peeling in a sense that, you know, when I was first coming out of it, there were the first things I became aware of, like, oh shit, this, this. Okay, and then as I started working on that, and I got a grasp of it, a next thing, I, you know, I became aware of the next thing. And so right. that awareness process continues to this day. Um, yeah. You know, now that I'm engaged, I'm like, oh my God, here's this other thing I realized. Um, yes. So it's, it's a forever cycle, but um, yes, awareness is definitely key. Right. And yeah, it's a lifelong journey. I mean, I'm, I'm on the same journey as everyone else that as I heal something, as you're saying, I mean, hierarchy of needs. And so we start with the most pressing and then we do, we peel back the onion. Um, unfortunately, a lot of people don't start with anything. So they just keep operating through life with this fucked up lens that is rooted in trauma and often not even knowing that. And so that is like, when we talk about where to start to fix your relationship, that's where to start. Become aware of your trauma, become aware of how it's coming up in your relationship. The second is increasing your emotion, emotional regulation skills. So when you are getting triggered, when you are feeling overwhelmed, you have to learn how to regulate that. Again, not something that is taught to many of us in childhood, not something that's role modeled, um, but we have to seek out the skills and the knowledge around that too. Are there any things off the top of your head that people can do when they feel triggered? Yeah, so the first thing that I suggest is that we have to become aware of what's going on in our bodies. We are a society of busy, so we are not stopping to check in on what that stomach pain means, what that headache means. Like We don't have time for that. Like We get on to the next. So we have to create time for that. And what I suggest is just two minutes a day, sitting down and doing what I call a body scan. Mm -hmm. So starting at the top of your head, down to the tip of your toe, just really... Um, assessing what's going on in your body so that you get a baseline, okay? Because then when we talk about triggers, um, all triggers start with a physiological reaction. So what happens is this, uh, the amygdala, the emotional center of our brain, is designed to store sensory, all sensory components of any experience. When we are then exposed to some type of any similar sensory um, stimuli that reminds us of that original trauma, our amygdala does not know the difference between a real threat and a perceived threat. So it releases all of the biochemicals needed to send you into fight or flight. And so when we have that awareness that when we go into fight or flight, our body is reacting because, I mean, of course, your body was just flooded with hormones with all the biochemicals. When we can become aware of what that does to our body specifically, that alerts us to I am triggered. Most of us just react and we don't even know oh, I reacted because of this. So we have to start what's going on in our body. So I use the three W's is, is the tool that I give my clients. So the first W is what's going on in my body. 
So where is that reaction? For me, it's a specific stomach ache that takes place when I am triggered. Um, and I know that alerts me to like, all right, slow the fuck down because you're about to do something wild. So like back it up. <laughs> so then the second W is where is it coming from? So we're assessing like, okay, why am I feeling this way? What happened earlier in the day? What am I anticipating? And then the third W is what do I need? So how am I going to regulate? How am I going to pick the new behavior that I've been practicing that is really hard, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try it in this moment so that I can calm down? I mean, what I mean by regulate or um, is using a coping skill. So take some deep breaths, drink some water, have a snack, call a friend, whatever it is that just kind of changes the channel in your brain and allows your body to like, okay, I don't like what happened or what's about to happen, but in this moment, I'm safe and I'm okay. And let me get back into my logical brain to assess what to do. So that's kind of the tool I use for that. Yeah, that's a great one. I um, Even something as simple as walking away sometimes, you know, mm -hmm. that, that can help. Um, I know for me, as somebody who has had a severe kind of panic attacks and anxiety in the past, um, I used to get told to, uh, uh, and it really worked for me, um, hold on to a bag of ice. Mm -hmm. um, and they said, just hold it for 30 seconds. And I was like, what the hell would that do? And then I realized like it just shocks your body because it's so cold. Um, oh. So that that last one of like do something um, really does uh, hit me. Um, what are the other ones that you mentioned? So those are two. Yes. So uh, also becoming aware of our wants, needs, and boundaries. So we have to identify, um, I have a whole act activity that I take my clients through that I won't get into specifically, but it's identifying your five needs, five wants, and five boundaries in a relationship, whether you're single or in a relationship. Mm -hmm. And um, knowing, so the needs being non-negotiables, the wants being your preferences, and then the boundaries being deal breakers. Again, we generally do not take time to assess this. And so we're like, why am I so unhappy and then when you really look at it, you're like, my partner doesn't, maybe they have one out of my five needs. They have like two of my wants. Um, but then that leads into the next one, which is that we do have to learn how to appropriately express that to our partner. And so once we have awareness around, or if you're you know, single, you make a visual of it that you have somewhere that you're looking at as you're going on dates. But we have to be able to then articulate what those needs, wants, and boundaries are in an appropriate and effective way, which can be really difficult when we don't have maybe a roadmap for that. Um, but that ties, so that's three and four of know what you need and then learn how to express that. And what's the fifth one? Ties into the intimacy. So putting more focus on um, creating foreplay in all five of those areas. Mm -hmm. um, and so whether that's, so for intellectual, for me, that's like going to an art museum, that's going to the theater, that's doing something that we can then go to dinner afterwards over a glass of wine and we can, you know, talk about what we just looked at and um, pick each other's brains and get into deep conversation around it. So that would be an example of intellectual foreplay. I love that. I love it. Well, uh, Dr. Frederick, as we uh, wrap out this episode, um, what's one actionable thing, you know, listeners can do today or this week to start the reprogramming process for them? Create your timeline. So sit down with a piece of paper, uh, do it on the notes section of your phone if you want to do it on the couch. I don't care where you do it. Start at birth. What you know, we don't remember birth, so what we've been told about birth, what the stories um, that have been shared with us, who was living in the home, all of that. And then track it from, so at birth, and then go birth to five, elementary years, middle school, high school, and then adult years. And start to identify what were the themes. So was it abandonment? Was it rejection? Was it performing for love? Like what were the things that were happening over and over? That is the first place to start. Well, good luck, guys. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> Getting to that one. Um, no, I think that's a, that's a really, really great activity um, to do because sometimes we don't know something until we like see it visually. You know, we, I think yeah. sometimes we even replay stories in our head, but out of a timeline. And so we're hopping back and forth and it might just like all be jumbled and not make sense. Um, right. So I, I think that's a really cool exercise. I might, I might try it myself. And um, if you can't remember everything in exact order or things like that, totally fine. The biggest thing, and I have a lot of clients who will ask like, well, I can't remember anything from childhood, which valid. If you were spending a lot of time 
dissociating. Of course you can't. Um, so try to remember of like how you felt. And even that will give us a good idea of, of what's going on and you know why you are seeking the people that you're seeking currently. This was such a great conversation, Dr. Frederick. You're not totally done because we do something called six questions. Uh, we ask every guest the exact same six questions. So are you ready for your six questions, Dr. Elizabeth Frederick? Well, I mean, I guess we'll see. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> as ready as I can be. Yeah, don't think about it too much. Um, here's your first question. What is the first thing you notice about a potential partner? Uh, their energy. So the way they carry themselves, the their posture. Yeah, just that energy they're putting out. What is one deal breaker? Being legally married. How about you uh, sign your divorce papers before yeah, yeah. you hit on me? That would That's be a good one. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. <laughs> um, what turns you on? Intellectual foreplay. I mean, all day, deep conversations. That's a good one. Uh, what are one of your strengths and one of your weaknesses in relationships? Yeah, good question. I... I would say that my strength is my awareness and my willingness to take accountability. Like I genuinely want to be the best partner and best, you know, friend and mom and all of those things that I can be. So I have awareness around those things. And I'm willing to work on what needs to change. And my weakness is that I'm also a firecracker. And so I am, uh, have often very little patience and um, something I'm working on. Um, but yeah, I am a feisty motherfucker. So <laughs> love it. And awareness is key, like you said. <laughs> uh, what is love? To me, love is a verb, really. It is love is about action. It, you know, it, it is that feeling that we have, but that is such a minor, that's 10% of it. And I really believe the other 90% of love is the action we put into showing that we care about somebody. Mm, good one. Um, and besides I love you, what three words would you want your partner to tell you? My favorite thing to hear is I got you. That is, that is also one of my turn-ons probably. <laughs> you mine like it as too. well? Yeah, yeah, that's mine too. I love it. Yes. Um, well, now we can say... Thank you, Dr. Frederick, for being on the podcast. Um, once again, where can everyone find you and all your work? Yes. So my website is uh, drelizabethfedrick.com. And then also on Instagram at drelizabethfedrick. Spent a lot of time hanging out there. Lots of tips and content um, that and talk a lot about relationship reprogramming on there as well. So if people want to know more, they can find it on there also. Well, thank you so much again. It was a real, real joy to have you on um, and to help us kickstart uh, 2024 with these great reprogramming tools. Um, friends, we're also on social. We're at Kind of Dating across the board. I'm at Natasha Chindale on Instagram and Facebook, Natasha.Chindale on TikTok. Thank you guys so much for downloading this episode. If you like something you heard, please remember to screenshot the episode and tag us on social media. Finally, I know it seems tough out there, but just try. Till next time. Kinda Dating is created, produced, and hosted by myself, Natasha Chandale. Aisha Holden is my co-host and our social media producer. And we only sound great thanks to our producer and audio engineer, Adam Pineless. The opening music is composed by Joe Lorenzetti, and our logo and graphics are by Jenna Yenick and K. Daniel Ellis.